It's the 28th of November, 2015, and this is episode 268. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're back to fresh content and new ground. Earlier this month, I put on a suit and headed to San Francisco for the Future of Digital Currency and Blockchain Conference. Today, I'm pleased to bring you the first two talks from that event. If you've educated yourself about Bitcoin on the internet in the last few years, chances are good you've run across James D'Angelo and his long-running series of educational videos. We end today's episode with his talk, Bitcoin Governance, The Decentralization Myth. But first, economist Garrick Heilman sat down with Brian Ford for a wide-ranging talk on cryptocurrency trends, where we've been, and where we're going. Enjoy the show. My name is Ryan Ford, uh, the director of Digital Currency Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. Uh, we started in April, and we have a couple of goals. One is to do fundamental research, look at the security, the stability, the scalability of uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and the economic, the monetary, and the privacy implications, and also look at uh, practical pilots. What are some of the technological in- innovations that some of our students can, can work on to help uh, advance the field? Um, and Garrett? So my name is Garrett Heilman. I'm at the London School of Economics. Uh, I don't get too much uh, opportunity to do history these days. Uh, this subject is certainly not history. We're very much making history. But uh, uh, I became interested in, in Bitcoin and blockchain about four and a half years ago. Uh, so was one of the earlier academics, I think, to show some interest, particularly on the economic side. And uh, for the past uh, almost two years, I've been working with Coindesk on the state of Bitcoin reports, which we publish on a quarterly basis. And uh, I think that's partly what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, as, as, as many of you are, you know, uh, working on the technology, what you maybe reluctantly become is uh, an ambassador for the technology, explaining it a lot. And as I go around and, and, and talk to, to friends and, and colleagues about it, there's, I feel like there's four themes that, that, that tend to come up. And as I was reading uh, Garrick's uh, report on the state of Bitcoin for the third quarter of 2015, um, I thought it had some really interesting uh, stats that I wanted to go over and had some kind of questions. And, and, and these are some of the uh, reports that we're sharing in, in our classes at, at MIT. And I wanted to go over it with everyone because I think there's some really interesting insights in there. And I've broken it into four areas that I, I consistently hear. One is uh, there's two areas of wow and two areas of, of doubt. I think the, the first area of wow is investment. Wow. I think, are we over 1 billion yet? Is uh, we're at 900 million? I think, I think we're just short of just short. 1 billion in publicly announced VC. I have no doubt that the total amount is over a billion because there's private billion. money. Yeah. So people are pretty impressed with that number, um, and we'll, we'll dig into some of the details there. Uh, the second uh, um, area is how global this is. Um, this isn't uh, a niche thing for, uh, for the first world. This is something that can truly impact... Uh, people around the world. So we'll talk about the global reach and some of the, the insights there. But then people say, well, what about adoption? Um, and we'll, we'll look at some of the stats there. And then lastly, regulation. Um, so looking at investment, uh, I'll go through about four or five slides and then 
uh, ask Eric a few questions. I think what's really interesting with with this uh, with this stat is that you know it's outpacing other fast-growing startup sectors. And so you know while many of the unicorns exist in in photo sharing or, or some of these these other areas uh, like physical storage and uh, transportation, uh, Bitcoin is, is 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 outpacing the other startup sectors, which is really interesting. And then if we look at uh, investment year to date, it's more than doubled in 2015, which is really impressive. So almost uh, half of the money that's been raised for uh, cryptocurrency related startups has been raised in in 2015. In total, we we have you know it's been publicly announced 921 million. You know, I hear we'll we'll hit one billion by by the end of the year. Um, but if you compare it to early internet, which Bitcoin is often referred to as uh, as compared to early internet, uh, early internet is still uh, was still invested at at a, at a faster uh, with with more money than um, than Bitcoin. If you compare 2015 to to 1996, um, and you know, I thought what was most interesting about these set of slides is that he, he broke down the, uh, the seven Bitcoin industry sectors from infrastructure to exchanges to financial services to mining to payment processing to wallets to universal. And what he found was that infrastructure had the most amount of investment. And that probably makes sense. But what I wanted to, to ask, ask your opinion on is, is what do you think is the, the next sector or maybe the next two or three sectors that will have um, the most growth in terms of investment. Mm -hmm. so, so we might be on the cusp of actually really changing this slide significantly. I think this has kind of been the traditional way in which many people have looked at Bitcoin uh, because Bitcoin up until I think really the last six, nine months was primarily thought of from a consumer perspective or from a currency perspective, if you will. And we're seeing now a lot of interest in the non-currency applications. That's the term I use for things like what Factum is doing in terms of you know, working with countries about moving land registry systems onto the blockchain, or what you know, Blythe Masters and a digital asset holdings is talking about doing with uh, settlements. So I'm starting to think about whether or not this is gonna completely kind of be you know, put in the background and we're gonna have a you know, currency uh, section, with it, which is companies that do payment processing, exchanges, et cetera, non-currency, Factums, and then hybrids, which would be companies like an ITBIT that are doing both. Start as an exchange, but also now have uh, BankChain, a, a product that helps uh, with, with, with settlement and clearing. Um, so that's, I think, kind of what, what people are, are interested in. We've got a VC panel coming up after this. We can, we can actually ask the investors what they're going to be investing in. But I, I think blockchain is going to be an important part of the story for investors going forward, in the near term at least. That's really interesting. And, and when, you, uh, when you look at how global this is, um, or the potential for it. You know, 23 countries now have v uh, venture capital-backed Bitcoin startups. Um, and uh, you know, while 23 countries have venture capital-backed startups, uh, the US has more than three times compared to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And there's been no venture capital investment in the Middle East, Latin America, or Africa. Um, in the last two consecutive quarters. Uh, however, a lot of the applications for this are being, um, they're saying that this is where the biggest impact could be in, in, in some of those regions. Um, and, but, and then if you look at North America and, and Western Europe, they have the most amount of Bitcoin accepting businesses, um, but they're the least fertile for Bitcoin adoption. So it seems like there's a, a mismatch between the businesses that actually accept Bitcoin and where people have actually started to adopt it. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, my, my question then is, um, uh, do you think that the venture capital model that's, uh, you know, fairly robust in, uh, in the U.S. and in, in Western Europe will need to start to be modified to where the amount of Bitcoin adoption is happening and to where some of the applications are being, um, being or who the applications are being designed for? I think it's a great question. I, I put out a, uh, an index a little over a year ago. Uh, you can go to my, my website, garrickheilman.com, if you're interested in the paper called the Bitcoin Market Potential Index, which took about 40 variables and then ranked 180 countries by where Bitcoin would have the greatest utility, primarily as a currency, but also thinking about it as a technology platform. And it really was places like Latin America, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, the post-Soviet Union, those parts of the world would actually have the most usefulness. I mean, Bitcoin would have the most usefulness there. Yet, as Brian just showed you, uh, you know, Bitcoin is primarily being, um, you know, promoted, you know, both if you look at where businesses are setting up and where VC money is invested in Western Europe and North America. Uh, so I think that's a great question. I mean, should more money be deployed into Argentina, into these places? I know a lot of startups that were launched here in Silicon Valley that are beaming in their products and services into other parts of the world. Is that really effective? Um, you know, I also talk to entrepreneurs who are spending a lot of time on airplanes in places like London, et cetera, trying to you know, launch things. And I, I think there is a big disconnect between, um, between where the industry is focused and, and where the opportunity is. But I'm not sure we're seeing a lot of evidence yet that there's been a shift. So that's really interesting. I know I, maybe you guys have some of the same experience, but you know, when, when I'm trying to explain Bitcoin here in, in the US or in Europe, um, you know, it takes a little while to sink in. However, when I'm in developing nations, uh, like I was in Iraq earlier this year, uh, they get it immediately. And so you know, the, the pickup is, is a lot easier because the financial institutions are, are not as strong. And also just for, we're gonna do a, a, about a 10 minute Q&A. So as you guys are kind of, as we're flipping through these slides, kind of have some questions um, in the back of your head that you can ask uh, myself or, or Garrick as well. So then the next question is they say, okay, this Bitcoin thing is, is, is great, I'm into it, but what is the adoption rate look like? And you hear a lot of numbers tossed around by startups and, and others. Um, you know, they're proud of how many wallets they have, or, um, but other people look at the amount of uh, transactions per day. And so there's a lot of key performance indicators, you know, that, uh, that I think are really interesting. So if we look at, you know, the amount of transactions um, that are happening per day. Uh, what was the latest number that we saw on your phone? Uh, well, it's, I mean, the average went up over 100,000 not too long ago, and that was kind of, a, I think, a big milestone for the industry. But you can see some pretty significant spikes uh, up over 200,000. I think those are primarily related to some of the stress testing uh, uh, shenanigans, <laughs> if you will, that were, were taking place. Uh, but that's, that's significant. I mean, volume is going up. It's going up, you know, not exponentially, um, you know, VCs rather, would rather see a big hockey stick like we saw with price in late 2013 or with hashing power, but, you know, steady, steady increase in activity. Yeah. Um, then others talk about the amount of wallets, um, and uh, you're saying that it stayed around 12 million. That's what we're projecting for the, for so, the end of this year. But again, it's, I mean, I think the key here is that this is a linear picture, right? It's not, it's not a hockey stick. And... Um, you know, there was a lot of investment. We'll be talking about that in the next panel. Mm -hmm. A lot of investment in 2013, 2014. I think thinking that this might hockey stick on the consumer side at least, yet adoption has remained relatively linear. linear. So that's, that's, that's an issue. 
Um, or Bitcoin accepting merchants. So we're at about 120,000. And, and that one you can see is starting to flatten off a bit. And, and this really, I think, gets at the, the fact that Bitcoin makes a tremendous amount of sense for merchants. You don't have to deal with chargebacks, uh, lower fees, et cetera. Uh, but from the consumer side, you've got to go out and acquire the Bitcoin. There's this initial step you have to take uh, that, you know, until people are getting paid in Bitcoin or a virtual currency, I think that is always going to be a barrier. And that's one of the reasons why I think business models um, that try to, you know, 21, for example, here in San Francisco, um, you know, trying to get kind of a regular stream of Bitcoin flowing into people's digital wallets without them really having to even lift a finger. I think that's really interesting um, because once people have a currency, they're more likely to spend it, but they actually have to take an extra step. Then you need to be strongly motivated to do that, which you are in a place like Argentina, but not so much here in the U.S. Yeah. And, uh, well, this is pretty relevant for today and kind of some fun, fun tiles to look at. So if you look at the Coindesk's top 10 most viewed stories, it looks like the top five stories are all about the price, uh, which, um, you know, it's a pretty uh, interesting topic, especially for today and where the price is at. Um, but uh, uh, that's another KPI that people are looking at. It is. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk, I think, when the price first collapsed about, well, this isn't, you know, so, so significant. Uh, you know, it's one of many barometers that you were kind of watching in terms of industry health. But I think, I think it is an important barometer. I think, um, you know, there is a kind of a, a bit of a virtuous circle where, you know, basically the higher the price, you know, the more miners come on board. The more miners that come on board or more computing power, the more secure the network is. The more secure the network is, you know, the more applications that get built on top of it, the more applications, the more consumer or demand there is, and that, of course, fuels price. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, if you're a fan of, of Bitcoin and you're in the industry, it's great to see the price rebounding. I think that's good. It's a little concerning about how fast it's going up. Uh, we've seen this story before. Hang on to your uh, <laughs> seats, folks. Uh, but there's also some really interesting kind of things that have been developing. So you look at Q3. So what, why was this uh, such a hot topic in Q3? And you know, I, I focus on macro uh, economic issues. It's really interesting for me to see the uh, effects that events in a place like Greece, where arguably very few people are buying Bitcoin, right? There was like, I think, one Bitcoin in the ATM in, as of June of this year. Um, yet people watching that are saying, whoa, you know, that's troubling, maybe we should be investing in Bitcoin to make sure we can still um, you know, move capital around or, or make payments when, when you know, the financial system shuts down. Or in particular, obviously, China. I mean, I think everyone's probably pretty aware that things in China are a little shaky these days in terms of the renminbi's value. Will they devalue the currency? Um, you know, of course, Chinese demand in late 2013 was a big part of the story when the price got up over 1,000. So China is a market to absolutely watch. Mm. And I'll, I'll throw out, Brian, if, if you don't mind, just one really radical conjecture here. So I want to be very clear that this is a speculative conjecture, okay? But if I'm the Chinese and I'm looking at what's going on here in the world today and I'm looking at the fact that, for example, I was uh, just blocked from having the renminbi included in the IMF SDRs. This is the basket of reserve currencies that the IMF determines. Um, and I'm looking at the fact that, you know, approximately half or more of Bitcoin mining is taking place inside China. And I'm looking at the fact that the Chinese, you know, my citizens have already shown an interest in this currency. And I'm thinking about ways in which I might elbow my way into that reserve currency club. And I'm looking at how expensive it is to acquire gold because the price of gold is quite high and the U.S. has such a dominant position. 
I might be thinking that, you know what, Bitcoin could be interesting as a reserve asset. If I can buy it cheaply, if I've got a pretty good grip on the mining power that's inside the Great Firewall of China, it would be something that I'd be thinking about. It's a radical idea, but why not? That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> something to think about. Now, you know, we also talked about um, you know, how, how, how challenging it can be sometimes to use Bitcoin. Bitcoin purchases are, are, are down by 40%, according to Expedia, which is... Um, uh, and then, you know, the, but these challenges aren't unique. Um, so walk us through a little bit more about um, the, the struggles that, the, that, that Apple Pay has had with usage. Right. Well, this, this is a, a subject that I think is quite, quite you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good pick-me-up if you're in the industry that, you know, even a company as, as successful as Apple at marketing and rolling out new products can, can hit a bit of a hiccup. So I don't know if people are aware of this. Apple Pay usage is, you know, tapered a bit. It hasn't, like, fallen off a cliff so far as I know, but it's tapered a bit as really the hype around the iPhone 6, 6's launch and, and Apple Pay as a new product kind of, kind of uh, diminished, if you will. So why, why did that happen? I think that's, that's really a, a good question. Well, you know, where is Apple Pay rolled out? Well, it started here in the United <laughs> States. And again, warts and all, uh, you know, there's a system here that works from the consumer's perspective reasonably well, you know, and habit is really hard to break, you know. I still have to carry around my wallet even if I'm using Apple Pay because I've got a driver's license, I've got other things. So I'm not liberated from my wallet by Apple Pay. So I might as well keep my credit cards and keep swiping because that's what I've been doing. So point is, is that Apple only had to roll out a new payment rail. Bitcoin is rolling out both a new payment rail and a new currency. So double the challenge, if you will. It's a hard problem that people in this industry are trying to solve. Even Apple is struggling. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then the other, uh, the other thing that people talk about uh, is one of the, the first great uh, applications for Bitcoin will be remittances. Yeah, there was a great uh, blog post that came out. I can't remember about from uh, from an entrepreneur in, in the Philippines who was running a startup and talked about all of the challenges with the costs in the last mile and how they're actually not less than um, traditional remittance firms like Western Union. And you know, you kind of go through and identify why some of the Bitcoin remittances or the the remittances <laughs> have struggled to date. Right. Well, this is this right now is is the uh, I'm working on a paper on this very topic. And so, if you're interested, by the way, in the subject of remittances vis-a-vis -vis the traditional remittances systems, please get in touch. Uh, we'd very much like to collaborate with people who are interested in this topic. But uh, there's some debate here around whether or not basically remittances are actually competitive, are cost-effective vis-a-vis traditional remittances providers like Western Union, MoneyGram, et cetera. Um, that's what my research is trying to get at the heart of. Is that true or not? But we know this. We know that uh, you know it's hard to get consumers to to switch. Um, there's a behavioral economics factor here as well, where people look at say a 15% fee, but they're not looking at it on a percentage basis, and they're certainly not aggregating the the not, the amount of fees that are going to remittances companies. They're thinking, okay, I've got to send $100 or $200, and I got to pay 15 bucks. Well, 15 bucks isn't that much money in conjunction with $200, and they kind of let that 15 go. So that's an interesting kind of uh, hmm. behavioral economics uh, factor here. Um, the incumbents have responded. Western Union cut their fee down to 6%, I believe it is, in, Tanz uh, in Kenya or Tanzania. Um, B2B, I understand, is actually getting more traction than, than, than consumer remittances. So I've heard good things about Align Commerce, I think is the name of the company that's focusing on small and medium-sized businesses. And it makes sense. You can go to a decision maker, one person maybe, who can then see the the money-saving opportunity and, and switch. 
So that's, that's maybe where things should focus on. Um, you know, access to banks, that's a common issue. But, but let's also be honest here. I mean, Bitcoin's brand has taken a bit of a hit, you know, in the last two years with all the fraud and things, and it's tarnished. And I'm really interested in seeing companies like Abra and BitReserve renaming their, their, their you know, company to uphold, getting away from Bit or Coin. I think that's a smart thing. I think you want this Bitcoin stuff to be kind of in the background from a consumer perspective. Just make it work. Don't try to tell them about Bitcoin and money because people get confused about money. It's a very, very difficult subject to talk about. Yeah, and I think the multi-million dollar question here is the amount of money that startups have to raise for the, the regulatory licenses as well. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, uh, it's always interesting to, to compare uh, Bitcoin and the amount of uh, annual transactions and process time versus PayPal and, uh, you know, the, um, the other clearinghouses. This is, this is another project that, uh, that I, I am also looking for research partners on. So there's been a, you know, everyone gets up on stage at events like this and say, oh, there's these great opportunities around blockchain. We can, you know, uh, you know do the provenance of conflict diamonds. So you don't have to worry about when you buy a diamond for your engagement that it's, you know, it came from a bloody war zone, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of things that blockchain can be used for. Um, but what I want to do is I want to actually rank, like I did with countries, uh, the market opportunity around blockchain uh, applications. So looking at things like latency of existing systems, costs, are there any regulatory barriers, what's the uh, market structure of the industry, so is it all oligopolistic? In other words, there's very little pressure to actually compete, in which case companies are going to be more inclined to actually want to just sit on whatever legacy technology they have, or is it very hyper-competitive and they need to innovate? So these are all drivers of, say, a, a new index ranking around all these dozens, hundreds of different applications of blockchain. If you're interested in that, please, please get in touch. So the last, uh, or one of the many, many concerns, or one of the one that's most prominent, is, is regulation. And so, uh, you know, we had a, a couple of, of, of we, we've been kind of going through a lot of um, discussions about regulation, especially with the establishment of the, the bit license in New York. Um, you know, here they say that, you know, we need to distinguish between Bitcoin and blockchain technology, uh, which is interesting. Um, you know, I think they were, uh, you know, they did the similar things with the internet um, when, you know, certain items are, are, are sold that uh, had certain uh, regulations, they would separate them and not just say all regulations that apply to, um, you know, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and guns need to be applied to all e-commerce on the internet. So um, it's important to start doing some of those distinctions and not applying it to all transactions. Um, uh, and, uh, but I thought this was actually the most interesting slide here um, about how regulators don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden tax eggs. Um, while uh, I, you know, there's, there's always this apprehension about, about government and, you know, how they're going to overregulate. I think this was actually uh, really thoughtful about, you know, how um, different companies were able to, successful companies were able to navigate that. Right. Well, this, this is my turn to actually turn the question to Brian. I didn't know Brian lived in <laughs> D.C. I, I thought he was in Boston at MIT, but he commutes. Uh, I mean, you, I mean you, you spend time in D.C. I mean, yeah. what do you think uh, is, is in the minds of, you know, I, I've heard that there's a, a difference between the policymaker mindset and the enforcement mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes maybe the industry kind of confuses those two or conflates them. And yeah, well, that's a, well, that's a, I, I, I kind of separate into like in three buckets. But uh, I think what's most, uh, 
what's, what's interesting when you talk to people in, in, in government, I think it's important to separate who you're talking to in government. So there's, you know, the um, state governments who have certain domains, and there's federal governments that have a different domain, and then there's, you know, we, we can think about the U.S., but there's also the international governments, and they have, you know, different, uh, different structures as well. So it's important to clarify who has what control and to know that when you're going into doing this research. But, um, and then there's the congressional branch and the executive branch, and, you know, they have different, you know, authorities as well. But, you know, I would say net-net, when I do talk to officials in government, um, you know, they either... Uh, um, need a 30-minute, uh, you know, Bitcoin 101, and once they do have that, they get past the headlines that they've read, um, and they they can actually start to have some educated conversations. And they uh, there's a, a blockchain alliance that was created that's kind of like a, a 1-800 number for uh, government officials and regulators for them to ask those technical questions that they need to know to help them better shape regulation. Um, you know, I think the Bit License came out. Uh, in a more, uh, it was more, oh, oh, is, is not ideal, um, and maybe a little over-aggressive. It was the first shot, and, you know, uh, future regulation that's come out from other states has been better, and I think that's a reflection of lawmakers learning from other people's mistakes, which I think is a good sign. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's dialogue uh, that's going to be most important, um, having those conversations. You know, we have, I don't know, 100, 200 people here, um, who are all ambassadors and have access to, to different types of people. And so as long as you're having that open dialogue, I think that's going to be incredibly important in, in educating um, government officials about this. Um, so we should open it up to the floor. We have about five and a half minutes um, for any questions that you might have. And I know we have some people running around with microphones, but um, and, uh, until we have that, uh, no, no, just question, stand up no and questions from other panelists or speakers. Those are too hard, usually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I guess ra raise your hand if you have a, have a question. Uh, we have one there back in the back corner. Yeah, you? Yep, yep. So, uh, have, have either of you looked at the economics of the dark, of the dark markets that kind of gave Bitcoin its initial kickoff? Um, Is that still? Uh, a market, would you say? Have you, do you have yes. any empirical yes. numbers? It, it is. It is still. Uh, Bitcoin is still the coin of the realm in the dark markets. Why? When you have arguably more secure, more anonymous currencies out there, well, first mover advantage, the liquidity that Bitcoin offers, you know, et cetera. Um, but, but there's some research, there's some interesting research questions around that, which we can talk about offline, but yeah, I mean, there was a study just real quickly that looked at Bitcoin transactions on the dark market, and they said they were roughly equal to BitPay's total transaction volume in 2014, I think was the year. It's an academic study. You can quibble about the methods, but it gives you some sense that, of the significance. Does neutrality matter um, as far as the success of these various types of vehicles are concerned? Because that's something that was really true about Bitcoin. Nobody's really responsible for it. So is that an element that matters? And will future cryptocurrencies or platforms built like that have it? You know, I, so, I, so neutrality, I, I frame it in a different way. I call it permissionless innovation. Um, and so the ability for anyone to wake up and build an application on top of a cryptocurrency is incredibly powerful. You don't have to ask for the permission of a bank or Visa or MasterCard or some payment processor. And that will enable um, 
you know, uh, huge opportunities from, um, from significant amounts of, of entrepreneurs who are trying to figure this out because they, you know, have faced some own problem in their life and they just want to solve it and then solve it, it solves it for a lot of people. So I think the permissionless innovation component is, is the most important and, and that gets into a broader question, which is, you know, public versus private blockchains and how will that, you know, impact the future of, uh, um, of Bitcoin, which is a really important question to ask. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, Spencer Bogart from Needham & Company. Hey, I'm not sure if you guys have had a chance to look at the proposal at all, but I know that, that W3 is working on a web payments working group. Mm-hmm. Any sense on what the puts and takes might be for, for Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, digital currencies in general versus traditional payment methods? Any potential impact from that working group? I think they're, um, it's a relatively new group. I, I'm not sure if I've seen the, the latest proposal, um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for organizations like that to um, help think through some of these issues. I know that the people in the group are, are, are quite smart and have a lot of experience in trying to figure out you know, how you wrangle a, a group of people to start to build out some forms of um, um, uh, standards. So um, that could be incredibly important for us as we try to figure that out. You know, we ho- helped host with a lot of other organizations uh, the Scaling Bitcoin Workshop in Montreal, and there'll be another one coming up in, in, in early December, and it's, you know, bringing together some of these people to, to ask some of the hard questions, because, you know, there's a lot of conversations that are happening on mailing lists, but, you know, uh, you know some of these people had never met before, and they'd been going over, you know, back and forth on IRC or email, and so just coming together and having those conversations is going to be incredibly important for, um, for cryptocurrencies going forward. Mm-hmm. Hi, yeah. Um, do you think it's more likely that nation states would rather build their own uh, digital cryptocurrency type of networks and then perhaps interlink them into another sort of more global system rather than having just one Bitcoin. Because we already see with Russia, who had the problem with SWIFT uh, over the last two years and they built out their own SWIFT network. And China itself has many homegrown technologies ranging from AT- payment networks to uh, sort of a communications networks. And for China particularly, they want to rely on homegrown technology and not be put in a position where a foreign country or group of people can sort of turn it off. And if, for example, with Bitcoin today, where some people are already concerned that Chinese miners control about close to 50 or maybe more than 50% of the mining power, you know, we've heard some people say they don't like that and it could be flipped around. So why would nation states allow perhaps you know, something so fundamental as the currency of their country to be put into a system where another country could suddenly turn on bunch of supercomputers and sort of block their processing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, why would uh, anyone hold U.S. dollars if you're outside the United States as a reserve currency? It's the standard. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's achieved primacy, at least for now. I mean, before the dollar, uh, the pound sterling was the reserve currency, and then there was a switch. Um, you know, anytime nation states, you know, are going to do what you're suggesting, they need to coordinate and cooperate and agree. And uh, these are challenging things. I was just in Lima for the IMF World Bank meetings. I was invited down to brief about 30 central bank governors on the challenges around remittances and whether or not this technology could be helpful. And, uh, you know, very difficult to get a large number of countries to agree to a common standard, similar to why I was very skeptical of whether an Amazon or an Apple or a Google would invent their own version of Bitcoin. Because if Google invented it, you think Amazon would start accepting it? You know, I mean, so that's the kind of unique thing that something that's wholly independent, like a, like a Bitcoin, doesn't have to be Bitcoin, but like a Bitcoin offers, 
both companies as well as countries. Nobody has too much control over it, though. I would argue that China has a pretty strong position right now. And the Bank of England is looking at doing just that by creating a cryptocurrency, a digital sterling. Central banks are definitely thinking about this, and uh, there may be some interesting things happening uh, in the next uh, few years. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I think we're out of time. Um, so thank you so much for, uh, for having us. Thank you. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the LTB Network and the just-launched Marketplace. Head over to letstalkbitcoin.com marketplace or click the Marketplace item on the front page to visit our new shop where you can support the network and the various content creators who use the network by purchasing sponsorships, music, apparel, and more. I'm particularly excited that after almost three years, we're finally going to offer two designs of t-shirts and sweatshirts. One featuring the classic LTB bubble logo on a nice 100% cotton royal blue t-shirt, and the other featuring the grayscale album art from episode 168, A Miner's Work Is Never Done. Both designs are available as a t-shirt for $19 or $35 for a sweatshirt. Those prices include shipping in the U.S. and are low because we're going to be placing our first order for these designs on the second week of December, and we'd like to know sizing information before we place this order. If you're interested in supporting the show, visit letstalkbitcoin.com slash marketplace and order one or both, and we'll have them to you before Christmas. There are lots of other items available on the marketplace from other shows and other content creators. I really recommend that you take a look at it. Incidentally, the LTB Network Marketplace is powered by the 10 store system developed by my company, Tokenly. Almost all items may be purchased using either a credit card, Bitcoin, LTB coin, BitCrystals, and a few other tokens. You can also use Shapeshift. The goal with the store system is to make it as easy as possible for people to give you their money in exchange for the things that you're selling. And the LTB Network is, of course, one of our earliest users. If you're interested in creating your own store, you can get started at redeem.tokenly.com. And if you have any questions, I'm always available at adam at tokenly.com. The magic word for today's episode is LTBN. That's L-T-B-N. You've got until the 5th of December to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. So that's enough for today. Thanks to everyone in advance for your support. Let's rejoin the conference now as James D'Angelo comes to the stage with a broody look about him. Hi, my name is James D'Angelo. I, uh, I basically spent 95% of my time this year looking at Congress. So I was actually quite amused at many of the governance issues that Bitcoin was running into. I do a lot of work <clears throat> in the crypto space. I, I have a channel, uh, you know, do various videos on the, on the topic. I actually was gonna do this talk uh, that's based mostly on some of the videos that I did, which is basically a million killer apps. All the different places where Bitcoin might change the game. And then The Economist came out with this article that launched a few days ago, and it was kind of my talk. And I was like, well, they maybe watched it, but I really didn't feel like redoing it. And then there was all this excitement with the price rise. And then there was also some of this stuff that I just really wanted to talk about. And the stuff that we're, I originally thought about talking about was very dark. And I was like, oh, I'll just go for it. And really, it's my talk. It's a dark talk. Um, but I actually, this morning, bumped into a nice little dose of sunshine in the middle of the talk. So let's go.
So Bitcoin's centralization problem, and this is the line I added, and a brand new way to massively scale Bitcoin. Um, and so this isn't the centralization stuff that you've heard, mining pools, core dev exchanges, all this stuff that people talk about is too centralized in Bitcoin. There's actually something, I would say, even worse that people don't talk about. Um, and I'd say maybe they don't talk about it because it's too terrifying. And it's already been mentioned in the talk here today, and another speaker I know is going to touch on this issue. But this is a central, really nasty problem. Um, so 2009, Satoshi gave us all a dream. And I've got to say, I'm a huge fan of this dream. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this, even when I look at governance and, and Congress. Um, and it's this hope of censorship resistance the inability to change something that's been put up there and timestamp it. And, you know, there's lots of ways to talk about per permissionless innovation, et cetera. But this idea that you can have censorship resistance. And it's this dream of a global public ledger, and this is really where my million killer apps came from. It's this ability to build on this public ledger. And inside of this dream and this hope, a lot of us see things that we want to build, see things that we get attached to, th see things that we like. Some people really enjoy the currency, some people enjoy other things. And some of us see a global currency not controlled by central authority, some see solutions to corrupt land titles, stolen identities, pilfering governments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Satoshi never imagined all the subtleties. Clever guy. You know, he thought about a ton of this stuff, but I don't think there's any way he could have thought of all of this. So we have thousands of great minds now spending years looking at this stuff. And startups that they've just mentioned have received now over a billion dollars worth of investments. And so we've got this really, really powerful growth. But as each of us focus on our own specific idea, so say you're into identity, I spend a lot of time looking at how Bitcoin can change the world for identity. Well, then you look at Bitcoin for the things that you want to get out of it, all right? So you start to look at the slight changes in Bitcoin that are going to help your idea. Okay, so we've spread out the domain. It's no longer just a central cryptocurrency. It's starting to move out a little bit. A couple of years ago, we had one of these big debates. And most people probably already forgot about this one, but it was a pretty big debate at the time. You had groups like Counterparty and MasterCoin who were looking to put more data into transactions or find some way to put more data into Bitcoin. And this was, you know, I, I actually thought this was really exciting because this simple change would unleash the power of smart contracts. And I won a prize at MIT a year and a half ago now for a way to solve global climate change using smart contracts. And so I was very excited about what uh, these two companies were building. And so for me, once again, I was a partisan member here. I really enjoyed what these guys were doing. But others argued very well that this extra data would lead into problems. Too much data on the blockchain, graffiti, or worse. You could see people putting in really nasty images and content that now is going to be on everybody's drive. And you can't even censor it. Remember, we're talking about censorship resistant. All right, so you put this really nasty stuff up there, or you just put, say I put the video jaws on the blockchain, right? Now everybody's got to download it. You know, you've already got it, but now everyone's got to have it. And this has already happened. So there are photos on the blockchain. Nelson Mandela, photo on the blockchain. A number of these things have already happened, but it's been controlled in some way, and the discussion has kind of moved towards let's be very conservative and not put a ton of extra data on the blockchain. Lately, however, there's been a, another debate I'm sure you've all heard about, 
the block size debate, and it sounds simple enough, right? Oh, do we get bigger blocks, smaller blocks? Um, increase the block size just as Satoshi intended, right? We go back and we go back to our god Satoshi. And what did he intend? What did he really want, right? So Bitcoin can scale. But the debate isn't about block size. It's actually not about block size at all. And the real contention here, it's not about size of blocks. Bigger blocks, yeah, they'd be better in theory if there wasn't another issue. So there's a proxy war that's happening. And it's happening about something that people really are not talking about, I would say, nearly aggressively enough. There's an all-out battle over the most dangerous type of centralization. And if Bitcoin becomes centralized in this dangerous way, it's no longer censorship resistant at all. So the original dream, the original scope is censorship resistance. But if it becomes centralized in this way, it's not censorship resistant at all. And so all these things that we're looking at, identity, smart contracts, dissolve. So if it gets centralized in the dangerous way, it erases everything, your currency, your value, everything. So the dream is gone and we have nothing. So what's going on? Bitcoin is as decentralized an institution as possible. Gavin Andreessen, I'd say the House of Representatives is more decentralized, provably, um, 435 different individuals from geographically separate areas. Can we say that about Bitcoin? I don't know. Jeff Garzik, I think, is a little more subtle on this. He says, you have centralization on the low and high end. And what he's meaning is you have centralization if you move blocks smaller, one megabyte, or even smaller, I'm actually a small black fan. I would like 100K, all right? And you have centralization on the high end, and the centralization is different. So if the block size is pushed upward, I'll let you read this, I'll just go through it quickly, then propagation times are going to increase, fewer individuals can afford to mine, and there are centralization risks, big blocks. If the block size is pushed downward, fees will increase, low-cost transactions become impossible, and they're forced to move off-chain, Coinbase, all those guys, and there are centralization risks. Both are risks. They are different types of centralization. Centralization at the one megabyte end isn't a particularly dangerous type of centralization. Peter Todd, I agree. It's 10 times safer, a million times safer, a billion times safer, enormously safer. So what is this dangerous type of centralization that we're talking about? Some say it's the large mining pools. Some say it's off blockchain settlements. But what's interesting about both of these is we can vote them out of the, we can vote them off the boat, right? They're subscriber-based centralizations. You join a mining pool, you can leave them as soon as they get big. You join Coinbase and you can leave it. And so you can drop these forms of centralizations instantly. The dangerous centralization isn't mentioned in the scholarly articles. There's some articles on this. They don't mention it at all. They mention the mining pool stuff. They mention Coinbase. They mention Reddit moderators, right? They're all dangerous, but this one's not mentioned at all. The owners of the mining hardware are the problem, right? People were going, oh, I think China has over 50%. Maybe it's true. We don't really know. We don't even know who controls that mining hardware. We will never know who controls that mining hardware. Where is the mining hardware? Who's owning it? Are they colluding? What's going on? We don't know. And we've decidedly ignored this, right? There could be two people right now in control of all the mining hardware in the world. 
they're centralizing. How much? Anybody here know? Nobody knows. Measuring decentralization is difficult. It's not even true. Measuring decentralization is impossible. So is it even kosher to use the word decentralize at all? No. In this particular instance, saying the word decentralized is ingenuine. It's disingenuous. For someone to sell you on the idea that Bitcoin at its most important point is decentralized, they're making it up. Go how decentralized? Prove it. Show it. Give me some data. They have none. Decentralization has nothing to do with the number of nodes. Nothing. Hash rate, bandwidth, nothing to do with it. Okay, it doesn't matter how much hardware or hash rate you see, that does not measure decentralization at all. Decentralization requires counting noses, actual human people, their different agendas, their different interests. The more people you have, the more decentralized you are, period. I can control a million different nodes all over the world. I could run nodes wherever I want. I could set up hardware wherever I want. I can buy out nodes. I can do whatever I want. But I am just one person, okay? If I control all the nodes, we've centralized. I don't care how much hardware you put out there. Folks who own masses amount of mining hardware opt in. We cannot vote to remove them if they centralize or collude Bitcoin's centralized, period. This dangerous centralization could happen tomorrow. I've got worse news for you. It could have begun last year. We could be under a 51% attack right now that's been going on for a year that's getting ready to be announced tomorrow, which will erase every single transaction for the last year. Okay? This is a problem. And we don't have any way of knowing this. No way of knowing this. I'd say it's dangerous. And this is the block size debate. They're not talking about anything else. This is what Peter Todd is upset about, but he's not telling you this, okay? We keep using the word decentralization and it means nothing. So as we juggle parameters, as we squirm and wriggle for solutions, I wanna suggest one solution that I've not heard discussed. And boy, are people not gonna like this solution. It's the taboo solution. A dose of identity. This is what I've been working on, identity. There's, we're going to hear more from one name, I think, doing great work on identity. Decentralization can only be assured if identity is insured. Remember, we are counting noses, not nodes. Very different thing. What if we could choose some of our miners? Wow, starting to sound a little bit like the House of Representatives. What if we could impose a geographic limit that they aren't even next door to each other, not near each other? all over the world. China might be happier to hear that. Africa might be happier to hear that as well. Here's a hypothetical, and this is the most extreme version of this problem, and it's actually something that I quite enjoy asking people. What if every 10th block was mined by a human? What if Andreas Antonopoulos mined every 10th block? Andreas wouldn't need to be encumbered by proof of work. So his blocks would be fast and absorb millions and billions of transactions. We don't have to worry about transaction fees. We've just scaled the network up enormously. So if you're working on scaling Bitcoin, you've got a really nice proposal here that costs nothing. Andreas doesn't have the same incentive structure as those who own and control the hardware. 
I would say he doesn't have their incentive structure at all. So if he's got different incentives, he's got a different nose, you've now decentralized. So we'd be massively, just by adding Andreas to every 10th block, massively decentralizing the interest base. That's very important. Why stop there? Given that anonymity is not compatible at all with decentralization, they're incompatible. It's impossible to have decentralization and anonymity at the same time and prove it. Okay, you can guess at it, but you can't prove it. And if you can't prove it, you shouldn't put your money in it. Okay, we should do everything we can to balance the two. I'm not saying have every block mined by Andreas. I think that would be a tragedy. Someone put a gun to his head, poor Andreas, we love the guy. He doesn't need slides, I can't remember two lines in a row. So he's a genius, right? Uh, it would be a tragedy. Um, real human miners, provably decentralized, infinitely more faster and more scalable than what we've got right now. Costs nothing. So I'd love to see these guys mine every hundredth block, every thousandth block, something like that. That's it. Now, just because I work on government, I'm just gonna add a couple more slides here that are kind of fun. I couldn't resist a little note on something that might be too decentralized. No governing body has ever decentralized as much as Bitcoin is trying to do. That's good and bad, right? We're trying to make a decision on this block size debate, and we're trying to open it up to Reddit, open it up to whoever. Oh, come on, everybody get involved. <sighs> Day one, when Satoshi ran Bitcoin, he ran it on 50 machines. Why? Early decentralization terrified him. He wouldn't be able to run updates. What if someone else just slapped in three computers right away and he had one? He was terrified of the decentralization. He needed to centralize for a while to get things done, all right? He wouldn't be able to run updates. He wouldn't be able to stop a 51% attack. The very first day he had 51 computers. And it's because of centralization terrified him, okay? So if we go back to look at some of his early ideas, why not look at what he actually did? Bitcoin isn't protected by math at all. This is a social thing. This is a human thing. It is not the honey badger. It is very fragile. And we need to act accordingly because the dream is too beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by the Future of Digital Currency and Blockchain Conference, and specifically by Garrick, Brian, and James. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was lightly edited by Adam B. Levine. Check out the new LTB Network Marketplace at letstalkbitcoin.com marketplace and get 20% off when you spend LTB coin. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.